Thank you very much. I hope there's power coming through uh, for those who find it hard to hear. I don't think you will for much longer. That's uh, good to Thank you very much for the invitation to uh, come here uh, from where that came. I'm very, very grateful to, uh, to be here as uh, from the neighboring Baptist church down the road at Salisbury Road, although I'm not there much longer. Uh, this coming May, uh, May the 4th, is in fact my last uh, service at uh, Salisbury Road. I'll be then moving up to Columpton to resume or take up a ministry up there in mid-Devon. So uh, it's, it's all change in Plymouth Baptist life at the moment, with uh, Andy going, of course, and myself, and Stu Clark uh, going in June to retire. Uh, so it's all movement of the Baptist furniture, but I expect some good and exciting new folk to fill our shoes and to take all these places on uh, the next stage of the journey. Uh, but more of that. Um, I do a number of other things, of course, uh, just to make you aware of who you have in your pulpit, and then you can decide, you know, whether to throw stones later on. No, that's uh, uh, as well as uh, serving the folk at Salisbury Road. I'm also one of the part-time chaplains at the university, and have the good fortune to uh, work with Alan in, in that regard. So uh, it's good that he led this morning. I, I feel in safe hands uh, having him lead us. Uh, also, uh, as well as that, I uh, serve on the councils of both the Baptist Union and BMS. Uh, so it's uh, having some fingers in that pie and uh, chair a working group from the Baptist Council concerned with uh, uh, issues to do with justice for disabled folk within the denomination. One of the core values of the Baptist Union is to be an inclusive community. And for many of us over a number of years, we've felt that in certain areas, and particularly from my point of view, the area of disabled folk, we are not an inclusive union. May I say that in my experience, I, you know, I've been a student, I've worked freelance for a while at the place, I've discovered the most discrimination as a disabled person is the Christian church. I don't say that lightly, but I do say it directly that the place where I've experienced the strangest attitudes towards me uh, and that kind of thing has been within the church. The world is ahead of the church in terms of integrating folk. That is not going to happen much longer within the Baptist Union, one hopes. And so part of what I do is to aid churches. Some of it is to aid churches in uh, what they need for integrating folk. Uh, in 10 days' time, I'll do something I've never done before and lecture at one of our Baptist colleges. It is, in fact, my old college at uh, Bristol, the oldest, the superior Baptist college. Now, maybe I shouldn't say that sort of thing. Uh, but I'll be lecturing there a week on Wednesday. I've never lectured before, uh, so that is going to be a new experience. But uh, so, so that's some of the stuff I do. I'm also a member of the Northumbria community, which some of you may or may not have heard of. Uh, but we'll be using one of their blessings as the benediction at the end. So I do uh, retreats and quiet days. So I'm one of these sort of strange, although I'm loud, I'm one of these strange retreaty type of people as well. And uh, so that gives you some sort of flavor as to who you have occupying the pulpit. I'm married uh, to Rowan, as I have been for nearly 11 years. And we have two dogs and four cats at home. Uh, so we're very much an animal-friendly uh, household. And somehow we've got to move all this household to Columpton in a few months. However, to business. Uh, Exodus 14, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'm only going to read the first 18 verses to you of the chapter. The Braille book you'll see in front of me is only Exodus. Uh, the full Braille NIV is 44 volumes like that one. So that tells you something of what lines my bookshelves uh, at home. Uh, but we're going to read this exciting chapter together. Then I'll pray, and then I'll try and make some sense of it. Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near pi hai Roth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, 
directly opposite Baal Zephron. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the hemmed in by the desert. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will glean glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled Pharaoh and, was, and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their service. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near pi hai Hiroth, opposite baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered them, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. May God bless the reading of his word to us today. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Help us now to believe it, to understand it, and to follow what you're saying within it. For Jesus' sake, amen. I was very pleased when I was given the passage and the topic. Uh, I don't always obey my instructions, but I did today, kind of. No, I did. And the title before you is Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, and I want to give you some perspective on that rather enigmatic title in a moment. But I was pleased because I really love the book of Exodus. The story from beginning to end is tremendous. It's full of high drama and 
memorable moments. I've had the privilege of hearing Jamaican pastors preach on Exodus. And they bring it to life in a wonderful way because of the history that they and their ancestors have known of slavery. And so for them, it's not just a book about history thousands of years ago. It's about their history only hundreds of years ago and how God raises up people to deliver. And they know that in a very deep and very powerful and very profound way. In a sense, the whole story so far could be summed up in a phrase from verse 4 of what I've just read. I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, for the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This story is really about God demonstrating his lordship in a number of ways. First of all, to the Israelites in releasing them from what was tremendous and dreadful servitude. They were humiliated. They had no dignity or worth except the value of their labor. It must have been debilitating for them to suffer generation after generation of such loss. But he's also, he's also extended his lordship to those who do not acknowledge him as lord. The Egyptians didn't. They worshipped a plethora of gods. A whole number of them, and the plagues, as you may well have discovered in weeks gone by, had some reference to the gods that the Egyptians claimed to worship. And God demonstrated that these gods were nothing compared to the true and living God. So in a sense, all the way through to this point, God has been displaying his lordship in all sorts of wonderful ways, and the purpose of it all is to give himself glory. This isn't an isolated theme in Exodus. In a sense, that's what the story of God is about, from creation to new creation. God extending his glory beyond himself. That it is, in a sense, one of the threads that is woven through the whole of the Bible. And indeed, that is our purpose on earth, as the Westminster Catechism puts it in its early introductory phrase. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we are here. We are here to glorify God, to extend his worth, to make him look good in a world, whether that world accepts him or not. We are those who lift him up. We are his representatives, and, his, um, and the role of ambassador is ours. That's our role on earth. Not just to enjoy ourselves, although there is a sense in it that enjoying God or being satisfied in God means that we will enjoy something of happiness, but it's a sort of different happiness to what we're used to. Enjoying God forever involves being satisfied in who God is. It involves celebrating who God is. It involves celebrating who we are in relation to who God is. And this 14th chapter of Exodus is, if you like, the end of Act 1 of this amazing dramatic play of the whole of the book of Exodus. It's a bridge, if you like between the story of how they get out and the story of how they survive as freed people. This is the moment of liberation. And those masses, one could say here. But I simply want to draw out four things to you that this passage conveys. 
four themes, four theological statements, I guess. You're going to be getting a bit of theology today. I remember when I preached at a view at Salisbury Road, I said, perhaps ill-advisedly, how much I love theology. And uh, one of the folk took me to task in the lobby and said, well, I don't love theology. I hate it. All these pompous theologians and all this sort of business. If you're going to be like that, I thought, well, that's me. I've blown that. I'm not coming to, uh, I'm not coming to Plymouth. I have to tell you that eight and a half years later when I announced my moving on two Sundays ago, that same person came up to me and said, you've made me understand things about my faith that I never knew. I tell you this story not because I'm great, but what can happen to somebody. Actually, theology can be fun. That actually, what is, we all do theology all the time, you see. You might think, oh, that's just those brainy boffins who go to college and, and end up being our pastors and bore us to death for 40 minutes every Sunday or whatever it is. You're doing theology all the time. I'm sorry each and every one of you are, whether you like that idea or not. That's what you're doing. Every time you look at a night sky, that's what you're doing. Because you're marveling at how great God is. Theology is simply, in many respects, honoring God. It is that that explains who God is and how he connects with that that he's made and those that he's chosen how he connects with humanity. And I was reminded this week in something that I heard that part of the preacher's job is to locate where the people are in the story of God. So that's what I want to aim to do today. Locate you where you are here today in the great story of our deliverer Moses and I'll end up in the great story by the one who is greater than Moses, where we're located in that. So I want to introduce four things to you. Four things this story speaks to me of, and I hope you'll find valuable. I know that the earlier congregation claimed they did, and I'll take them at their word. And so I hope with some certainty, slightly more than I had at 9.30-odd when I spoke the first time, that these things might be valuable to you. The first thing is this event, which almost explains itself, really. This, yes, I know, my, my booming voice is scary to babies, I think. I've, uh, I, I'm just beginning to realize this. Uh, so so uh, is it, this event is a sign of a God's sovereign hand. A sign of God's sovereign hand. You may have heard over the years, this phrase, the sovereignty of God, God being king, God being in control, God being in charge of all things, because he's all-knowing, all-present, all-perceiving and understanding. He is the all-in-all. All. And here we see God in control. Now, many folk want to question that, or limit that, or add caveats to that. A caveat is something that is extra to, an addendum, a bracketed statement to that, that he's only a sovereign to the degree that we give it to him. Folk might not exactly teach that, but sometimes they do it more by what they don't say or do by what they do. I'm making a claim this morning for a God who is in charge of absolutely everything, even the world affairs that we find daunting. And when we look at our TV screens, we could be forgiven for saying, well, where is this controlling God? In the lands where people are poorest, among those who have very little dignity. Where is God in the homes of those who have experienced flooding, those who have lost Youngsters, children, and others. Where is God in all of that? We could be forgiven for, at this moment in time, in this community of God's people. I said it at the earliest service, but I'll say it again. You, as a community, are going through great change. And you may be asking, where is God? 
in the fact that our beloved pastor's going. What's that all about? We don't like turbulence. Andy and I have been in Plymouth a very similar amount of time to each other. And we never colluded in our disappearing at the same time either. Where is God and all of that? I mean, that's the question that's been lobbed at me. Why do you pastors do what you do? Why do you keep moving on and abandoning us? Some folk have blessed us. Some folk have stoically said, well, there is a future. And others have said, well, where's the future for us? One person, and I said, well, it's a really exciting opportunity for you. New people, new skills, new jokes, you know, new everything. Someone with different skills and abilities to take you on into new things. And they said, we don't want new things. And there was a mixture in my mind of sadness, a wee bit of irritation maybe, because God is a God who is always on the move. And, if you don't, and I said in the evening sermon, which I probably shouldn't have done, if you don't like constant moving forward, you probably don't like the gospel. Because God isn't a standstill God. God's always shoving us onto new territory. We don't like it. We're disposed to hate that kind of thing. The trouble is God moves us on. Where is God? In that stuff that makes us feel unhappy and unsettled when our pastors disappear. We have to believe. We must believe. That God is in it all. I mean, we don't just suddenly decide, oh, I'm fed up with these folk, I'm off. That isn't how it happens. It's a journey. It's a, a soul-searching journey. I can probably say things that your pastor maybe can't. So, you know, take it from one who's just inflicted the same on his congregation. Take it from my thought processes in this. It's, a, it's the, the hardest thing to tell your church what you're going to do. Because while you're excited about the new things, you're also aware of the hurt and the pain and the uncertainty that you're inflicting on others. Yet you feel what they feel and their uncertainties and their sadnesses and their irritation and their anger and all the rest of it. And you're also aware that God's hand in a mysterious way is doing something. I labor this because it's a good example of the fact that there are times when I belief in the sovereignty of God goes west. And we think, well, we know he's sovereign, but he wasn't sovereign in that bit. So-and-so has made a mistake. They're not doing it simply because we don't like what we've done. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that's how it is. But God is in total charge. I mean, when you look at the book of Exodus, it's a, it's a testimony to a sovereign God, not a God who is dependent on the whims and fancies of others, but a God who takes complete and utter charge. Chapter 1, you've got the story of um, how Moses ends up in the right hands at the right time for his upbringing and nurture. In chapter 2, you've got Moses extending his hand to kill another, and yet it's not God's time for him to come and emerge. In chapter 3, you've got his calling in a very strange way. In the chapters 4, 5, and 6, you've got this Moses, this stammering Moses before Pharaoh, having to state the case. And God making it harder for Moses by interfering with Pharaoh's head. Moses, God doesn't make it easy for us. He even sends us our enemies. He uses Satan, for goodness sake. Between the devil and the deep blue sea, Satan's a weapon in God's hand. You know, I'm always mindful of the unconscious belief in so many Christians that God and Satan are like a jewel boxes in a ring. And perhaps when we're obedient, God gets the upper hand. And perhaps when we're disobedient, Satan runs amok. And we let our eyes off the ball and Satan just somehow outwitted God and run amok through our congregation. You might even have said, oh, Satan's behind what's going on. And moving our pastor on, I don't know. I think that feeling has slightly been expressed to me, about me. So I just lob that one in, make you feel guilty if you say, no, no, just to, but Satan's under God's behest. Even Satan's under God's control through the cross. We'll come to that later. 
God is completely sovereign over everything, including Satan. The plagues are a testimony to God's sovereignty. The Passover is a testimony to God's sovereignty. What he's going to do in the desert over the next, if you're carrying on with this Moses story, sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. It's a God who controls the elements. I mean, he's going to part water, isn't he? He can do anything. A foretaste of Jesus' nature miracles in the New Testament. You see, the Old Testament and an Exodus, perhaps in particular for our attention today, foreshadows what's going on in the New Testament. It announces what Jesus is going to do. And in a sense, this water miracle should have set off in the New Testament folk who saw Jesus performing nature miracles. They should have said, oh, we know a story like that of old, don't we, when God did stuff like this. They would have been steeped in that story and immersed in it. He controls minds. He controls actions. He changes people's perception. He hardens hearts, changes plans. Don't you ever get frustrated when God changes your plans? I know I do. Because they're your plans and not his. He frustrates us and he makes a way. He shuts doors and he opens them. God is always about the business of that and he's in charge of our world. And you may may think, well, that's the bleeding obvious, isn't it? Of course he is. But somehow what we believe in our hearts and how it translates into our lives and prayers are often very different. In many senses, it was different for the Israelites too. We'll come on to that. But we pray in a way. Sometimes I think if I just get the right words at the right time, then God will move. I need to move him. We almost sometimes get into the realms of, I need to change his mind. Our friend who led the presentation about uh, street pastors was correct in one sense when he said prayer changes things. It doesn't change God's mind, but it does change us. And as we change and enter into the situations we're praying about, So we then see what God would have done anyway. See, there's no contradiction between praying and things changing and God being absolutely sovereign and what would have happened would have happened whether we prayed or we didn't. We change, we perceive, we become actors in the play of what God's doing. There's no contradiction there really at all. Maybe that's a lesson that's that's relearned for you today. But we need reminding that God's in utter charge. And perhaps for such a time as this, I pray that this is a lesson that really burns into you. That whatever befalls you as a congregation, God is sorting it out. I promise you that I will pray for you. I already have been. But you have my prayers in the months or however long things take place. Pray for the folk at Salisbury Road. Pray for the folk at who? As all these congregations go on a similar journey. Pray for the exciting results of new blood in Baptist pulpits in this city. What's that going to mean for the whole of the city life? I think it's thrilling that the furniture's moving around. And what the new folk are going to bring to this city to see it transformed. I could go on, but I must press on. Uh, This is a lot longer than the version one that people had. So we see in this story God's sovereign hand. And I must say before I move on, that there are times when that hand is obvious, but more often than not it's the hidden hand of God at work. And there's so much Bible warrant for what I say. The hidden hand of God is often the one we see most. But of course, we don't recognize it until it's been dealt. So you might think that God is doing nothing. 
the hidden hand of God is always at work. The second thing I want to bring your attention about this story is this. The parting of the Red Sea and the deliverance of God's people was a test of their faith. It was a test of their faith. Now, I've said that God is sovereign and in control of all things, but as part of that, he expects us to trust and act. Many Christians pray and sit back and expect by magic their situations to change. That God will somehow, in a blaze of flashing light, an appeal of trumpets, wrong metaphor, sorry, whatever that is, uh, appeal of bells, oh, whatever of trumpets, announce what's going on and will tell us, this is the way, go ye in it. Often it's just doing what we're doing. Talking to someone. Meeting someone. Just living our ordinary lives. But faith is cooperation. It's working in partnership with sovereign God. We we have to enact our deliverance. And yes, God calls us to be Christians. Before the foundation of the earth, God knew who'd be his, says Paul in Ephesians. But we need to somehow acknowledge that this is happening to us. We need to say the yes, not as a decision as much, or, but just as an agreement to that that God has been shaping and making take place in the past. Faith is indeed sorely tested at times. Faith is trust. And a relationship is based on trust. I mean, otherwise, that, it's a dictatorship. You know, folks say all this stuff about the sovereign God. Oh, well, we're just puppets in his hands. And the antidote to that is the fact that God, in his sovereign will, expects us to exercise faith and trust. And he knows because we're flawed individuals, we'll struggle with that. And as part of that, he makes us struggle with that. In verse 11, we see the Israelites not responding to the challenge very well. They're thinking it would have been better to have the devil they knew than the potential for a watery grave. See, here's this title, The Devil in a Deep Blue Sea... Well, it's better the devil we know than the uncertain future we don't. And many folk live their lives like that. They didn't have the trust to believe that God was in charge, that the new things, even though that was going to be dangerous, they had to step in to the sea. They had to walk across. They had to trust that their pursuers wouldn't be as quick and get them in the middle. They had to exercise their faith. Faith needs exercising. Otherwise, it's just blind dictatorship. We're spoon-fed. Some of you may like to be spoon-fed. I don't know. I don't. I remember, I, I, I've been told stories that I couldn't wait to learn how to eat properly. And, and the same is true for us all. And God wants us to be grown-ups and brave and bold and, you know, to keep going in this thing. But our natural default position is, oh, no. I want things to be the same. I want things to be predictable. The trouble is, God's not like that. God almost delights in the unpredictable. I think it was... Uh, Brian, who spoke about the surprising nature of God. That's one of the things that both frightens me and thrills me most about God. I'm thrilled by the fact that we serve an adventurous God who invites us on, on all sorts of adventures with him. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what keeps me going, preparing sermons. The knowledge that although God has a plan, there is a sense that as I understand it, is unpredictable at times. And we journey together. So there they are saying, oh no, 
God, you're stretching me too much. It hurts. Is this too demanding? You shouldn't do that. Surely when I signed up to this, it was a life of ease and enjoyment of your presence. And now you're taking me all over the place. No wonder they cry to the Lord. They're scared to death. But God wanted them to exercise their faith. And another aspect to this, the way this lack of faith often manifests itself, well, there's already been one way covered. We have a nostalgia for the past. We're very good at that as Christians. Great and golden ages, even though they were hard work, we suddenly think, oh, no, that was all right. Nothing like what's going on now. We have a rather romanticized view of the past, and in a sense, that's where they were. You know, is it really better, the hardship of all that beating and hours in the long sun and hard work and getting the scraps that were available? Oh, compared to the unpredictable future, yes, it was. But the way often manifests, a lack of faith manifests itself most wonderfully in complaining. We're very good at moaning as Christians. There they were, heading across the Red Sea, and later on you'll see more of it. The Israelites are very good at complaining. You won't see them in the desert with hard hats on or straw hats on. You'll see them with pom-poms on. Poor old me, poor old me, pom-pom-pom-pom, all day long. Going around singing their merry old song, pom-pom, pom-pom, pom-pom. You'll not forget that now, will you? <laughs> so there they, are, and there they are in the desert, moan, moan, moan. And isn't it amazing? They've got such long memories. Oh, not for the stuff that matters. They've got long memories about what Moses said to them and when and what they said to him. Oh, we told you. We told you to leave us alone. We told you that it's God. He's too hot to handle. And we're very good at remembering what others have said to us or what we've said to others. But isn't it amazing that the same memory abilities don't apply to what God's done for us? We don't take the time simply to reflect and think about what God said. For a pastor, that really does manifest itself in church meetings. But the truth of the matter is people think they've remembered what you said and think they've remembered what they said. But what they forgot when they hired me was that I have a memory much longer than theirs. I was blessed with an elephant-style memory. And I can remember conversations. I might even be able to mimic the person who said it in the way they said it. That's how we were. This is such a spiritual gift. I praise the Lord for it. Uh, and, so, and so I can out-remember the longer memories. And as actually on so-and-so, you said this. You actually have just rearranged the words, friend. You didn't say it quite like that. You said it quite like this. They've got long memories for what doesn't matter. But they've got very short memories for what does. Or rather, they have selective memories for what does. God's sovereign hand and his purposes tend to get forgotten. But note what Moses does to help them in the exercise of their faith. He doesn't come up and say, oh, you miserable lot. You're moaning about me. You're making my life a living hell. You're uh, questioning my authority. You're making me feel five foot tall. You should never do that to your leader. Don't you know me and the elders are going to come and duff you up and rough you around? And we're going to jolly well make you exercise your faith because that's what you should do. And that will make my life a lot easier. And we'll all go along together and be this happy band winning the world. He doesn't do that. I bet there are many leaders out there who would exercise their leadership like that. That's called abuse. It's not called strong leadership at all. It's called abuse. It's called, I've lost control, and you're all going to know it. That's what it's called. But Moses gets them back to God. Verse 13, 14 are important. Don't be afraid. Isn't that what the angel said to the frightened shepherds, to the frightened Mary, to all sorts of frightened folk in Luke's gospel? Yeah, th those words echo time and time again. Don't be afraid. Is it said in a command? Is it said as a gentle encouragement? 
Well, you interpret that for yourselves. I'm not going to spoon-feed you all the way, am I? You, you, you see how you think the tone would have been. But the command is nevertheless true. Don't be afraid. There's no need to be. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. Be still and know that I am God. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the deliverance that will come. And I reckon that these are words for some people today. That you're going through all sorts of things. And actually, standing here thinking about it, I think these are words to me. Underneath this confident exterior, I'm a panicker. I'm a worrier at times. And I need to hear these words at times of panic and change. So I need to hear these right now, even if you don't. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. Look and see what I'm going to do. Look and see what I have done. See where you are and then move on. Don't stay standing still. There's moments for stillness. And there is. But there's also moments, moments for movement. And we stand still in order to move, to catch our breath, to get our perspective, to see where we're going, and off we go. So in this faith business, when life is tough, here is some words for you. Don't be afraid. Stand firm on whom you know, and you will see things unfolding. It might not be what you want to see, but you will see what God wants you to do. So we have a sovereign hand of God. We have this test of faith. The third thing that I see from this event that I think it's worth us knowing is that deliverance comes through obedience. Deliverance comes through obedience. God wants us to obey him and follow him. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not offering you a formula that if you pray in a certain way, everything's going to happen wonderfully. If you send a check to a certain ministry, your life's going to be blessed. It isn't like that. But God does have this equation that obedience is rewarded with deliverance. They had to follow instructions. Moses had to hold out his staff. The water was parted. They walked through. He holds it out again. The Egyptians drown. One bit of that wasn't followed, it would all have gone wrong. Imagine it. Moses hadn't held out the staff. Gluggity glug. The Israelites do dry and die in the desert. Moses does that, and they don't walk through. And they stand there looking like lemons. That would have been a very sorry spectacle. Imagine that if they'd gone through and he didn't re-hold out the staff, and along come the Egyptians. He doesn't need any magic. Every bit matters. Every bit matters. And every bit of what God has revealed to us matters. We want to cherry pick, pick and choose, and all that sort of thing. But God has given us the Bible, the instructions for our good and for our benefit. And when we do not follow it, when we question it, cut bits out, want to cut corners in certain bits, then we may not see the deliverance that we need to see. Obedience is a horrible word. People don't like it. Children don't like it particularly. Uh, when parents gently encourage them to obey them. Then you get to those passages in the New Testament about obedience to church leaders, and I certainly don't feel comfortable about preaching those. And I'm sure you don't seem very comfortable at hearing anybody else preaching those. Following others, not doing what we want to do, is the hardest thing going. Because we're so conditioned to live our lives our way, to do as we choose, and we can even spiritualize that to some degree. Oh, that's just so-and-so's opinion on what was said. That bit of the Bible, well, been and gone, doesn't matter. You can see how it happens, how the slide takes place. But yet we're missing out on something when we don't follow. We're missing out on so much and nobody hates to miss out. I remember vividly growing up, age of eight and nine and Wanting to extend the hours of bedtime. Why? Because I didn't want to miss out on anything. I loved life so much I wanted to be awake. 
and embrace as much of it as it was possible. And perhaps I knew that eventually it was just too much of it and I'd just burn out anyway. But that, that my zest and enthusiasm for life was like, I didn't want to miss a moment. Sleep seemed this boring interlude between all sorts of exciting events. And many of us miss out on blessings because we haven't taken God at his word. God does act, yes, but they have to be ready to follow instructions. They have to put their toe in the water, so to speak. And they do get delivered. Obedience leads to deliverance. But the final thing I want to bring out is how this story is, in, it's, a, it's a story in and of itself, but it does have significance for us as New Testament people. Yes, we can at one level look at a story and say, well, God will be with me in my choppy waters. That's fine, to a point. You know, we can, we can, we can just sort of make a sort of comfy homily out of it, but actually, here's the theology again. See, Moses and these great Bible figures are self-contained folk. But they are also pointing the way to Jesus. And Jesus comes to us, as Hebrews is apt to point out, as a better version of, as the complete version of all the great saints who've gone before. And that is true of Moses. He fulfills the groundbreaking work that they announced. What they did and what they go through is a rehearsal for the great act of deliverance for the world. So this story, this event, the life of Moses, is a type of the gospel story of our salvation. The second exodus that took place and was fulfilled at the end of Jesus' life. The second exodus, in fact, which we are part of. We're the people standing on the edge of the Red Sea. We're the people who may well have crossed, but who are in the desert right now, waiting for the promised land. This is how it goes. They were slaves with Egyptian taskmasters. We were slaves. Our taskmaster was another devil. There you are. I have paid attention to your title. Ah, slave master was sin the devil death which resulted in separation from God alienation not being where we belong not being the people who we should be we were slaves I always say this to my folk you know non-Christians may I say respectfully are not as free as they think you know, so many people are saying, oh, we're autonomous people. We can go around our lives are ours to do what they like with. Actually, they're not. People in this world either belong to one master or another, whether it's Jesus Christ or the selfishness and sin of the world. And everybody's a slave. We Christians are willing slaves, mind you, to Jesus Christ, but everybody in the world's a slave. They just don't realize to whom they are enslaved. So here we have, we're a people who are enslaved. And Jesus came to announce a new kingdom, a new people who would go to a promised land, and that will be when we are with God. And at the Last Supper, there's so much announced at the communion. They remembered the Passover, which you've heard about, no doubt, last week or the week before. And Jesus set the Last Supper at Passover to say, here's a new Passover. I'm going to pass over from this world into the places where sin and death reside, and I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to take away their power and their hold and their grip. And so as the Passover was an announcement of one deliverance, the communion is an announcement of another. The deliverance of the people of God whom God has chosen and whom he will set free. 
So the communion is an announcement of the second exodus and at the Easter event when Jesus was on the cross, he left this world, crossed to the places, the seats of power, to take away that power, to uh, serve notice on the pursuer, to say to our enemies, your time is up. My time has begun, and from that moment when Jesus burst out of the tomb, he really was the king. His kingship was announced. His rule was made known. And so on the cross, we have Jesus crossing over, as it were, the sea for us, defeating the enemies we have, serving notice on the devil, so that our victory can be secured. What a wonderful thing that is, that Easter is the second exodus, and so we live now like the desert wanderers you're going to hear about, with all the struggles and exile and everything else of that, learning how to survive in that in-between time until we take possession of that land by death, and we can say on that day when judgment is finished, free at last, free at last. Hallelujah, I'm free at last. Free to be what I was intended to be. No longer a desert wanderer, but in the promised land. For now we will be wandering, learning, growing, testing our God. But one day we will take residence in the kingdom of Christ, in the promised land. Until then, may God give us the grace and the help that we need. What a great deliverance by a sovereign God. May we pray. Don't worry, my friend, your misery is nearly over. May we pray together. Father God, I thank you for all that you've done in your word to reassure us of what a great work we're part of. I particularly want to pray for this group of people here at Motley in the uncertain times that they they face, the future that is unknown, but yet is known to you. And as they journey together through the rough and the smooth, may they know that you go with them. May they know that you are helping them, and may they take the steps of faith that is necessary. And in all that we've heard today, Lord, I pray that in people's minds you would take away that that has been unhelpful, that has been offensive, that has been unnecessary, flannel. And keep in mind that word that will set someone free. The word that will reassure them of who you are. That word that will give folk an even greater confidence than that that they possessed before. May you take this word and do what you will with it in every heart and mind that is here. For Jesus' sake, amen.